Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I love the way that Oscar described uh, the book of Psalms a few weeks ago. He said, uh, really, the book of Psalms is a, is a collection of songs and poems. He says it's almost like a classic jukebox where there's a song in there for everyone, right? You got some songs of joy and songs of sorrow. There's celebratory songs of delight that say, God, your ways are amazing. But there's also honest songs of lament that say, God, why do you feel so far right now? And the psalm we're reading this morning, Psalm 19, is really one of those sort of foundational sort of psalms. It's a psalm for for everyone. It's a psalm for all of us. Uh, C.S. Lewis says the following words about this psalm. He says, I take this, Psalm 19, to be the greatest poem in the, the Psalter, which is the book of Psalms. And he says it's one of the greatest lyrics uh, in the world. High praise coming from C.S. Lewis. Now, do you know why he gushes so hard about this psalm? It's because this psalm beautifully and sort of succinctly unpacks for us the foundational Christian truth that our God is a God who speaks to us. He's the God who reveals himself to us. That's amazing, right? And what's, what's, what's so amazing about that? It's because, well, the distance between us and God is great. The distance between us as creatures and God as creator is massive. And so unless God discloses himself, unless he initiates in speaking to us, in revealing to us who he is and what he's done in the world, then we wouldn't know anything about him. We could only speculate at best. It's like my three-year-old recently. She's been uh, like afraid of the dark. And so uh, she's also been uh, peeing in her bed. 
uh, at night. And so when I hear her crying and whimpering, uh, I'm wondering, is this a I'm afraid of the dark thing or is this like an I wet my bed thing? And so like I'll creep on over to, to sneak on over to, to down the hallway, down the dark hallway uh, in the middle of the night when she wakes me up with her, with her uh, whimpering. Uh, and I try to be really quiet because uh, sometimes she'll like talk to herself and, and, and she'll describe to herself what's going on. And so I'll, I'll wait to hear if it's, if it's a wet your bed kind of thing or if it's an afraid of the dark kind of thing. Uh, and sometimes if I creak on the floorboards maybe a little too hard, she'll say, Daddy? Daddy, is that you? Uh, and then she says, so she'll say, Daddy, say something. And she'll wait for me to respond. You see, she, she, she wouldn't know if I'm there or what my intentions are if she heard me. Uh, she has a suspicion that I'm there. She wouldn't know if I'm there at all or what my intentions are unless I disclosed myself to her. Because I'm, an entirely different, I'm in an entirely different dark room than her. She can't see me. And God is not just in another room of existence. He's in an ent- entire other realm of existence. He's the transcendent one. He's the self-existent one. He doesn't just exist in creation. He's the creator himself. And so if we want to know anything about who God is, what he's like, and what it means to be known by him, then he has to disclose himself to us. And the good news we see in Psalm 19 this morning is that our God has He has disclosed himself. Otherwise, we'd just have to speculate and lean into our own maybe self-made philosophy or self-made spirituality or self-made religion. But the creator of the universe has made himself known to us. That's the good news in this text, that the creator of the universe has made himself known to us. That's our big idea. So let's dig now into Psalm 19. We're going to break the text into three sections. We're going to look at first, how creation reveals God's glory. Secondly, how scripture reveals God's character. And lastly, we're going to consider a humble response then to God's word. Let's look at that first one, how creation reveals God's glory. Verse 1 says, read it with me. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And the psalmist here, David, he's saying, look, do you want to know about the glory of God? Then look at the heavens. Do you want to marvel at the creator's handiwork? Then look at the sky. Just, just look around you. Look at the horizon. When, when was the last time that you guys actually like took a moment to stop and consider sort of the creative masterpiece of a universe that we live in? You see, most of us spend a lot of our time inside, right? We spend our time inside, like at a cubicle, in an office, indoors, maybe at home. When was the last time you just enjoyed the outdoors, enjoyed the creation? You see, some of you guys uh, who've known me for a while, you know that I'm, I'm a bit of a, a homebody, right? <laughs> I'm a bit of a homebody. My wife, Alyssa, she's the fun one. I'm the boring one. 
I love being inside. I love hanging at home. Like, I'm a simple creature of habit. And so my perfect Saturday is cuddling on the couch with my wife and kids and watching Fantastic Mr. Fox with my daughter for like the 10th day in a row. That's my perfect Saturday. I just love, like, chilling at home. But Alyssa, on the other hand, my wife, she loves to be outside and on the move. She, she feels all cramped up when we stay at, at, at home for an entire day. Like on one of our first dates, hanging out together, we went to the beach. We went out to Laguna, and uh, we were waiting for our reservation to, to, to open up. And, uh, and she goes, hey, let's go just walk down the street. I'm like, all right. And she goes, hey, let's go walk down this street. And I'm like, all right. And eventually I'm like, okay, where are we going? And she's like, nowhere. Let's just walk around town. Like, I did not understand that walking with no destination, right? But now, because of her, like, I've learned to just enjoy the scenery outside all the time. Like, she's taught me how to slow down and soak it in whenever I'm outside. Earlier this week, uh, uh, us, me and a, a few, uh, like, local Acts 29 pastors were uh, our, our network. We, we, uh, we got together for uh, kind of a, a morning and afternoon of just training and, and rest and coaching. And uh, at the start of our time together, uh, we all jumped on some paddle boards. I'd never been paddle boarding before. We jumped on paddle boards in Newport Harbor, and uh, uh, the guy leading us like took us over to sort of this this private, secluded uh, beach. It was a ton of fun. But I was like paddling over there, and as I'm paddling over, there's like fish swimming under me. One fish like jumps up, almost lands on the paddle board. I've seen like seagulls or pelicans or something. I don't know what they're called. Uh, just kind of flying around trying to catch fish. Uh, I'm looking at the swarm of fish. Is it a swarm? No, it's a school, right? It's a school of fish under the, the, my paddleboard. And meanwhile, I'm seeing like the, the uh, reflection of the clouds up above. Uh, this was, I think, Tuesday. If you remember, it was a cloudy day. And so like the rays of light were coming through. Uh, and I just was like, my, my breath was just taken away. When you spend all your time inside or staring like at your phone whenever you're outside, you kind of miss those finer things. It's helpful to know that David, who wrote this psalm, that he was once a shepherd. And as a shepherd, he spent very little time inside and a ton of time outside. He spent a lot of time laying down on hills, on the side of hills while he was tending to the sheep. And so from his vantage point, he was well acquainted with the glory of the skies. He was moved by its greatness and its grandeur. And see, but David's focus in, in this psalm is not just creation in general, but specifically those skies, the heavens, the sky, the infinite space. And so when was the last time, ask yourself, when was the last time that I just peered into the night sky to get filled with wonder and awe? When was the last time you did that? Like in just our solar system, our little solar system alone, we have moons, we have comets up there, we have planets. There used to be nine planets, but then Pluto got demoted, right? So now we have dwarf planets too. 
all swirling around this massive star that we call our sun. And if you venture further out to another galaxy far, far away, you'll find clusters of other stars spinning in like these endless hurricanes of galaxies. It's no wonder that the sky has fascinated people for ages. And our fascination only grows even today because it seems like the more that we learn about what's out there, the more questions that we have. Uh, Astronomer Carl Sagan uh, once called the Earth, he said, the Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Our planet, he said, is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In other words, we are small, And the universe is great. It's humbling to think about. Read verse 2 with me. It says these heavens, uh, it says about these heavens and and these skies, verse 2, it says that day to day it pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, it says, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. These verses are just a poetic way of saying that the mode of communication here is nonverbal. So we're not talking like audible human voice, like the heavens aren't speaking to us in English. The skies aren't speaking in some like ancient dialect. But in some sense, there's still a voice. There's a metaphorical voice here, a voice that declares the glory of the creator day to day and night to night as if the turn of each new 24-hour day cycle was just like another rotation in this never-ending record player playing this cosmic declaration of a song that God, the maker and the creator of all, is the glorious one. Read verse 4 with me. It says, uh, or the rest of verse 4, it says, In them, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing that is hidden from its heat. Uh, ancient civilizations, they would worship the sun. But here, David calls our attention to the one who designed the sun. You see, the sun is this giant ball of exploding gas suspended like in a vast emptiness, 93 million miles away. Now, why should that move us? Why should this exploding ball of gas move us? Why did David write this poetic verse comparing it to a bridegroom? It's because nature... Nature can affect us like art. Nature can affect us the way that art does. Like it can lift your spirits. If you're stopping to pay attention, it can lift your spirits. Like think of a great piece of music, the way that that lifts your spirits. Nature can do that. Why does it have that effect? (laughs) Because it is art. It is art. Nature, the heavens, are handiwork. That's what verse 1 told us. God's handiwork, the whole of creation from the heavens on high to the depths down below are all declaring we are not an accident. Creation is not an accident. We are the product of artistic vision. We are the product of design of intention, of intelligence, of passion, of purpose from a divine artist 
And so the next time you look at the night sky or if you're next time you like watch a, a sunset or a sunrise or when you're maybe on a plane looking up and over the clouds, think about this passage. Think about how the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim its handiwork. And here's the thing. This general revelation of God from creation, it's... It tells us much about God's nature, but it doesn't, it doesn't tell us enough. It doesn't tell us enough. Romans 1 actually tells us that every human being gets a glimpse of God's glory just by opening their eyes. Because we live in this crazy, magnificent world of quarks and atoms and stars and planets and land and sea and creatures and laws of, of, of time and gravity. A world filled with evidence that there is a designer and creator behind it all that we now answer to. The theologians, they call this general revelation. General revelation because it generally reveals things about God, but not specifically. Which is why general revelation is just not enough. We need also what theologians call special revelation. You see, nature is God's general revelation, but we need special revelation that reveals God's character. General revelation is not enough to know about salvation. It tells us that there is a creator, but it doesn't tell us how to relate to that creator. And that's what we need special revelation for, which leads us to our second point. Scripture, which is special revelation, Scripture reveals God's character. Read verse 7 with me. It says, the law of the Lord is, what does it say? Perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect. And so while nature reveals God's glory, Scripture reveals God's character. And here in verse 7, when he says the law of the Lord is perfect, he's saying that there is something that Scripture reveals that is perfect, like even above and beyond what nature reveals. It's perfect. We'll unpack that more, but just a really quick side note. In the next few verses that we look at, David's going to use different words that, to, to mean Scripture. He's going to refer to the law of the Lord. And he's going to talk about the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the ordinances of the Lord. These are all just different synonyms or other ways of saying uh, Scripture. He's referring to the Bible. He's referring to the Word. So now... With that said, let's tackle these one at a time. Read verse 7 again. Verse 7 again says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, in this verse, and in the following verses, when it says the law of the Lord is, is perfect, sure, that it's sure, that it's right, that it's pure and true, what he's saying here is that the word of God is infallible, that it can be trusted. The word perfect here literally means straight edge. Not like the scene, but like the measuring stick, right? Like a measuring stick. In other words, the Word of God is like this trustworthy gold standard for all that is good, all that is true, all that is beautiful. And so you don't measure Scripture up against some sort of outside external standard. It is the standard. It is the gold standard. And so with that now, look again at verse 7. It says, the word of God now revives the soul. 
It revives the soul. That means that somehow, in God's like kind of crazy epic way of working, he decided that the words of special revelation, in other words, the words of scripture, are the primary means by which he revives the soul. And so if a sinner wants to be saved, this is important, if a sinner wants to be saved, if a broken soul wants to be made new, if the spiritually lost wants to be found, if the spiritually blind wants to now see, then it happens by encountering God in the Scriptures. It happens by reading the Word, by studying it by feasting on it, by devouring it. And somehow the Holy Spirit then, through the Word, will work in the depths of our souls and, and start to restore and to redeem all, that is bro- all the broken, sort of jacked up places in, in your heart and in mine. It happens through the Word. Read the rest of verse 7 with me. It says, then the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And so the scriptures can also make us wise. That means if we want a wisdom that is beyond us, a wisdom that is outside of us, that is trustworthy, then how do you get it? You got to dig into the scriptures. Where is it that you turn for wisdom? Where do you turn for wisdom? What is it that you look to to define what is true, good, and beautiful? Where is it that you go to define what is worth living for in this crazy thing called life? Who is your authority? And what qualifies that voice to speak into your life? You see, if that voice, that's your authority, is just your own voice, then that's a problem. Because then you're only following a voice whose wisdom and insight cannot be any greater than your own, than where you started. But if the voice that you're seeking is God's, if the voice that you're seeking is the Lord's, well then you'll seek after it in His Word. And there you'll find wisdom. You're not going to find it in primarily in in the top Christian bookseller list. You're not going to find it in your favorite blog or Instagram feed or 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 newsletter. I'm not I'm not slamming those things. Those things can be good and helpful, and they often are. But you won't find ultimate, lasting, trustworthy, transcendent wisdom and anything else other than the scriptures that God has gifted and preserved for us throughout the centuries. Read verse 8 now. It says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So when the Spirit of God starts to awaken your heart to the Word of God, one of the things that will happen is you'll begin to rejoice in the Lord. You'll begin to rejoice in the ways of Jesus. Uh, Finish reading verse 8 with me. It says, The commandment of the Lord now is pure, enlightening the eyes. This tells us that the Word of God actually gives us a new set of eyes. It gives us a new lens, a clearer mirror from which to see ourselves and a a new lens from which to see the world around us. 
In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this, uh, there's this one, one point where this prince falls under a curse. And all of a sudden, he can't remember who he is. And every night, this prince, every night at midnight, this knowledge that's sort of suppressed by the curse starts to try and make its way back up. It's deep down inside and tries to make its way back up to remind him of who he really is. It tries to come out. And so, and so the people that have like tied him up uh, that, or, or who, who have captured him, they tie him to a chair to keep him from acting on those suppressed memories. Uh, but then one night, he gets access to his sword. He grabs and reaches for his sword, and he ends up destroying the chair with his sword that he's tied to. And because he was able to destroy that chair and break free from it, by the end of the night, he can... He can act on these memories that are coming back and suddenly and, and, and then all of a sudden he permanently remembers everything about who he is, that he's a prince. The psalmist in Psalm 19 verse 8 is saying that scripture is kind of like that. It's like that sword which destroys the illusions and the misunderstandings that keep us from knowing who we were really intended to be keep us from knowing who we are in Christ. Read now verse 9 with me. It says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now here it talks about the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord, you, you know from other places, is, is what they call the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord simply means it, 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 it's when you begin to acknowledge the power that God rightly has over you. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's when you give credence to the divine power that God rightly has over you. And David here is saying, when you spend time in the word, the fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. It doesn't run out of gas. You start to enjoy living under his lordship because you see God is the true source of true life. Read the rest of verse 9. It says, The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. The rules of the Lord. Now, rules. We don't like that word, right? Rules. We don't like that word. But here, we're told that God's rules, they are what? True. They're true. In other words, His rules are framed by His infinite wisdom. They are grounded in sacred truth. And because they're grounded in sacred truth, they're also good and beautiful for us. Read verse 10 now. It says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now here, David is saying, even the smallest word of God even the tiniest word of God is more desired than gold, more desired than treasure. Think about the one thing that you desire most, the one thing that you treasure most. David is saying the word of God is better than that. It's better than that. Ask yourself, like, what good is it if you have that and all the treasure in the world but no knowledge of the grace of God. What good is it if you have that treasure and all the treasure in the world, but no revelation of God's character, who He is and what He's done for you? It says it's sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. 
So ask yourself, what good is it if I had the most sweet and savory meal of my life that satisfies my cravings for the day, but I'm left without spiritual satisfaction for eternity? What good is that? What about you this morning? What about you this morning? Do you love this book? Do you love the scriptures? Do you turn to it for guidance? Do you come to it for comfort? Do you trust in it for the source of wisdom? Do you, does it revive your soul? Do you hunger for it? Do you treasure it? C.S. Lewis has this book reflecting on the Psalms, and on this particular Psalm, he says the language in this passage is not so much about being what he calls scrupulous. In other words, it's not purely about you know, external resolve. Like this passage is not meant to shame you into loving your Bible. It's about being so smitten by the beauty of God's special revelation that you just want to devour it. You just want to read it. You become so smitten by the beauty of God's special revelation that you just want to spend time in it. You want to dig into it. It's like realizing that you're suddenly parched and you've been delivered a bucket from from a deep, refreshing well. That's what Psalm 19 is all about. In other words, if all you're hearing is some preacher trying to guilt you into reading the Bible, then you've missed the point. I don't want to guilt you into reading the Bible. That would be a bad reason to read it. Guilt would be a bad reason to read the Bible. So then, why do we read it? What is a good reason? Because it is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Think about what that means in the truest sense of those words. This is the preserved Word of God. The God who made the heavens and the skies. The God who the universe in all its vastness, in all its mysteries, in all its beauty, in all its continued unanswered questions for us, in all of its bigness, in all its greatness and vastness, the God who those heavens and skies speak of his glory has spoken to us. This is the word of God. It is the special revelation from him about who he is and who we are before him and what it means to to love him and to know him and to worship him. And so the goal is for you to see Scripture not as a chore, but as a treasure. Digging into God's Word is not a chore. It's a treasure. Now, how does that paradigm shift happen in our hearts? How do we get from treating, reading the scriptures, from, go, go from treating it as a chore to a treasure? The answer we find in our third point, which is our humble response to God's word. 
The psalmist David, he models for us how to respond to God's word. The answer is in humility. In humility before his word. Read verse 12 and 13 with me. David ends his psalm with this prayer to God. He asks, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant, speaking of himself, also from presumptuous or willing sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You see, the psalmist here, in humility, he's asking for help. He wants to move from chore to treasure. He's asking for help with that from the only place that he can get it, from the author of the book, from our maker and God. When he thinks, when David thinks about how good, about how holy, about how worthy God and his word are, he can't help but be convicted by his own unworthiness. He can't help it. And so that's why he says, Lord, keep me from presumptuous sins or keep me from willful sins. Lord, don't let them rule over me. Don't let my willful sins that I'm choosing other than you, don't let them rule over me. In other words, he's saying, Lord, help me see the sins that I'm choosing to do. Help me to discern them, the external ones. Help me to, and keep me then from falling more into them. But then he says, but the one thing that I can't do, the one thing that I can, can't do by myself is discern my hidden faults. I need your help. I can't discern my hidden faults. We all have hidden faults. Hidden faults are the sins of my heart. The things that are near impossible to see yourself, but that others might be able to. Maybe they might not, but maybe they will. Sins like pride, being unrighteously defensive, greed, bitterness, resentment, the things that tear you up on the inside and do the worst damage because you can't see it and you're not aware of it. David says, Lord, I can't discern these hidden faults, these, we could call them blind spots. And so he says, Lord, forgive me for even my blind spots. And this posture that David has, in light of God's revelation on high and his special revelation in front of him, David's posture, his response of a posture of humility is key for us to walk away with this morning. You can look and gaze and wonder all you want at the beauty of creation. And you can read and study and theologize all you want at the God-inspired scriptures. But the goal is for all of that to be while you're in a relationship with the Lord who has forgiven you who's cleansed you and adopted you as one of his own. You see, to truly see the glory of God's world and to truly taste the sweetness of God's word, you must first receive with joy God's grace. And this is why he ends his psalm with this prayer. 
I echoed it at the beginning of our time together. In verse 14, he says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And quickly, there's actually a fascinating paradox in this prayer. You may have noticed it. You see, on the one hand, David, he admits he's not perfect, right? He's like, I've got hidden sins. I've got willful sins. Lord, keep me from both. Forgive me of both. So on the one hand, he admits that he's not perfect. But on the other hand, he also says, let my words and thoughts be acceptable to you. There's a paradox there. There's only one way that that happens. There's only one way that that paradox reconciles. There's only one way to be considered acceptable before a holy God while you yourself are unholy and far from perfect. The key is in the last words where he addresses the Lord as his rock and his redeemer. You see, David's last words... With his last words, he's counting on God's character as the one who redeems sinners like him. He's counting on God's character as the one who redeems sinners like me and like you. David himself was an imperfect shepherd king. But his life pointed forward to a greater shepherd king named Jesus who would eventually lay down his own life for his sheep, the church. And he would eventually exchange his divine crown and throne for a thorny crown and cross. He would come down from the heavens and reach out so that sinners like you and like me and like David could be saved. In the 1960s, the first man was sent into space. And when this, this cosmonaut, this Russian cosmonaut, got to space, when he got to the cosmos, he said, when he got up there, he said, you know, I didn't see God up here, and so therefore there must not be a God. And C.S. Lewis responded to him in an article and said, look, if there is a God who made us, who's been there before the beginning, then we wouldn't be able to discover him just by going up. God wouldn't relate to humans the way that a man on the second floor would relate to a man on the first floor. He would relate to us in the way that Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Shakespeare created Hamlet and the world that he lives in, and so the only way that Hamlet could ever know the author of his own story is if Shakespeare somehow revealed himself to Hamlet in his own play. And in a way, God has revealed his glory in creation. And he's revealed his character in his word. But the Lord Jesus Christ does all of that and more. In Jesus, God didn't just give us more information about himself. He actually wrote himself into the story of the world. The author came into our world in the person of Jesus so that he could live among us, living for us, dying for us, and eventually rising for us to bring us new life through faith in him. 
this, this, this book, this sacred book is the story of God's love towards sinners like us. It's the story of people who keep messing up like us, who manipulate like us, who take shortcuts and end up making things worse like us, but who also encounter the scandalous grace of God like us, like we did in this text. And because he, because Jesus is the rock of our faith and the redeemer who saves, we can stand acceptable in God's sight as redeemed sons and daughters of the word. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.